0: Hello and welcome to the Building Cities Shaping Lives podcast, where we talk about how architecture, engineering and managed services are shaping the world that we live in. This podcast is brought to you by the Sabana Jurong Group. I'm your host, Daniel Lee, and I'm part of the SJ Group communications and branding team. I wasn't really allowed to play computer games when I was young, But I always remember that one class, when our teacher let our class have a go at SimCity 3000 in the computer lab. That hour passed by in a flash, as I carefully planned my very own city, putting down everything from roads to waste management plants while trying to keep my citizens happy. The success of the SimCity game franchise speaks to the importance of urban design and master planning, in shaping the development of many cities around the world, while enabling communities to bring the city to life in their own unique ways. I'm joined today by Tan Inkiet, SJ's Functional General Manager for Urban Development in Southeast Asia, and Deputy Director for Urban Planning and Design within our planning group. Welcome to the studio, Inkyat. Thanks, Daniel. Thanks for having me. So to kick us off, what do city planning games get right when it comes to your job? And what can't be simulated by a computer? Sure. When people used to ask me why I work for a living, I'll tell them, yeah, I'm a professional
1: SimCity player. You know, SimCity is actually quite an interesting um, sort of analogy to what we do. Um, you have to deal with not just the buildings, the the roads, the infrastructure. You also have to build cities where people are happy. Um, so. At the end of the day, we talk about building cities and shaping lives and that's kind of our sort of uh, company uh, motto. And it is true, you know, whatever we do in a built environment, it's about creating better livelihood for people. Um, That's kind of that driving principle of what we do. So along the way, we have to make sure that whatever whatever we're creating, uh, people are comfortable, it makes them happy,
0: uh, it makes them healthy. And essentially, I think SimCities pretty much got that right in that aspect. So, what are actually some examples of how you know these engagements with stakeholders have changed planning? I would say that planning is in its truest form something that's quite
1: ground up. Uh, it our stakeholders primarily actually the people who live in who are who live in and who are going to live in the sort of the cities and the towns that we're planning. um I think especially probably within the sort of um western way of doing planning. You know, um, the people, the residents have a very large voice. They can stop and stall a planning process if they don't feel that it's going along that way. I mean, it's got probably its pros and cons. I'm not too sure where to of the term NIMBY, not in my backyard. Um, and that is you know, part of the planning process as well, because the people who live in the neighborhood do have a very large voice in, in determining how the plan is going to turn out. But at the same time, um, you know, for a plan to really work, you also need that top down angle, because at the end of the day. There are limits to what you know. Even myself, as a resident, I will be able to perceive um, in terms of the plan. I see what benefits me, but I may not have an um, sort of understanding of how that benefits you know society as a whole, the country as a whole, um, or the city as a whole. Right. And that creates that or that requires a sort of a higher perspective um, from be it, you know, the the government or from the planning organization or from some other NGOs that are involved in the planning process, striking a balance between understanding what the people on the ground want, but also having a balance of understanding what is the sort of long term vision and sort of strategic aspect of what sort of of our planning
0: process. I see what I mean. And you know, just to go back to what you were talking about in terms of nimbyism, right? if it's not in my backyard, not in your backyard, not yep. in anyone's backyard, it wouldn't get built at all. That's right. So how do we find that, that balance? And I think, um, are there any concrete examples of you know, how you were going about you know, finding these necessary compromises, balancing top down and bottom up? So I, I, rem- I remember we were doing a project in um,
1: Oman right um interesting place right so we 're gone that 's beautiful so if, if you have a chance to go to Oman it 's fantastic you know it's uh, the people are very down to earth. We were doing a project that was uh, sort of one of the first or one of the latest sort of leisure developments um, in Oman. What happened was that a lot of people uh, who stay in musket, which is the capital city in Oman, they would you know head out to the to Dubai on the weekends, go to the theme parks to go to the shopping malls to spend the money and the Omanis obviously were saying, "Hey, wh- why are our guys leaving the country to spend the money elsewhere? Why don't they have something for them to do? Um, we need to make our cities more interesting. We need to make it more exciting." So we actually created uh, a series of um, workshops and interviews where we brought in different stakeholders to come in. We brought in school kids, school kids from the local schools, school kids from the international schools. We brought in the parents, we brought in the the sort of the working population, we brought in elderly. So we tried to. Target, you know, everyone from the age of nine months to okay, not nine months, maybe nine years old to to ninety years old, uh, just to get an idea of, you know, what's going to appeal to them, uh, what would they want um, in the sort of uh, development. So it, 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 we try to at least, you know, from our perspective, to at least have a more holistic and broader understanding of what people want on the ground. I mean, obviously, the developers, um, the investors would have their own mind of, you know, what's going to make money for them. There are obviously competing interests, um, and certain things are just more critical, more important. Um, and for a recreational leisure project, you know, yes, you know, definitely there will be some government funding that's coming into it, uh, because it does serve a national interest. But at the same time, you know, we also need to listen to the investors to say, okay, yeah, this might not work. You know, this might be a bit expensive. Um, and it's, again, it's part of the dialogue where we're kind of like the middleman. Um, we are not just suggesting a plan, not just suggesting an idea, but also, um, managing the stakeholders managing the conversation and the dialogue. We're kind of almost like giving a voice um, to both the people and also to explain you know, to the people sometimes what the
0: powers that be or the man has in mind. I see. you. Well, and you know, what you said about 9 to 99 reminds me of the Lego guideline, <laughs> right? Oh, yes. <laughs> you're right, you're right. Mm-hmm. And I think um, linked to that, so you're mentioning this Omani project where you guys, this was a, almost a greenfield kind of project, I'm guessing. But what about um, city uh, urban planning when it comes to established brownfield cities? Okay, maybe brownfield isn't the best example, but you know organic cities that mm-hmm. have been growing for 50, 100 years, many, many generations. Oh, definitely it would be. Well, I would say the principles are kind of the same, but the approach has to be quite different. We
1: have to recognize that there are existing cultures, communities that are in place already. And like it or not, you know, we always talk about when planners come in, gentrification happens and that's become a bit of a dirty word where you kind of wipe clean whatever that is dirty of the place. You know, from our perspective, we feel, yeah, but we're beautifying the place. But the reality is sometimes it's the dirty, gritty side of the the city that makes it interesting. I mean, you know, I I still remember probably about 20 years back, there was a criticism that Singapore was just too sterile, you know. And I think, you know, over the last, well, I, I hope to think that, you know, over the over the past 20 years we've kind of embraced the fact that you know Singapore is diverse right where we're allowing or we are encouraging people to have their own voices the people to to be more expressive for themselves and it's created I think today Singapore being a bit more vibrant um, there are a lot of little pockets where you have little subcultures that's happening on the ground right now and it's interesting to go around and discovering all these things without having to worry about crime and you know being mugged uh, if you turn into the wrong street corner but I think that's that's quite important. And sometimes, you know, even as a planner coming in as a almost like a foreign um, foreigner, right? You don't necessarily grasp the nuance that's on the ground. So it's important that there is an the engagement with the people that is there, um, not just with the mainstream, but if possible, you know, with the subcultures, with you know the maybe not the usual people that you would think would occupy these spaces. And that's always a challenge of a brownfield site um, because. You, it's, it's honestly quite difficult to be that comprehensive. you know. Um, so there's always a balancing act. It's always important to have all these stakeholder sort of engagements. And sometimes you want to do these fairly informally as well. Um, so definitely, I would say Brownfield projects are challenging. Um, it's not been a very common mode of development in Southeast Asia. Um, I think Southeast Asia tends to be, or in fact, Asia as a whole, uh, we tend to go, you know, what we call tabula rasa. We, we clean slate everything and, you know, stuff from ground up. But I think increasingly, um, especially like, you know, in the last couple of years in China, we have been seeing a lot of ground, ground field redevelopment projects um, coming up, you know, and I think it's a good thing. It's definitely a good thing. You, we've got a lot of returning sort of uh, graduates that have spent time in Europe, in America, um, in other cities around the world, and they start to appreciate the fact that, you know, it's important to preserve what's on the ground. It's not the prettiest. You know, but there is a charm to it. And I I guess that's what's important about brown food redevelopment, understanding what makes this place charming and not destroying it.
0: I also wanted to understand maybe a certain element of sustainability as well. So, you know, there's always this perception that be it brown viewed or green viewed you know, we do have to maybe look at certain resource spends, uh resources that need to be invested into this, or maybe even the the demolition of you know existing structures and so on, or even in the case of a forest, you know, that yep. might need to be cut down. So how are some uh, what are urban planners doing, you know, in terms mm. of balancing UN SDGs and what you do? So I think It's important to bear in mind that at the end
1: of the day, human development, city development in itself is inherently fairly destructive to the environment. We have to realize that we have responsibility to the world to our next generations and to make sure that and understanding that cities are destructive. How do you reduce the impact of this destruction? How do you lighten the footprint of um, cities on, on the planet earth? And that's definitely through, you know, thinking about the big picture. How do you become more energy efficient? How do you become more resource efficient? How do you start farming in the city? Um, how do you capture water in the city? But at the same time, um, what do you need to do? Well, what we should do also is to think a little bit about is city the sort of the only model that we can live in? Are there other ways to, to live as well? And I think you know a lot of the people nowadays are actually giving a bit of a pushback to urban living you know, cities are stressful. Cities are fast-paced. Um, people sometimes don't stop to to sort of um, enjoy the beautiful things that are around them. So you know, um there are a lot of people that are saying, no, I don't want to live in cities anymore. I want to move back to the countryside, and that's incre- increasingly you know picking up pace. Definitely, you know, coming back to sustainability, we need to just be aware that. Um, cities are inherently you know um they do have quite a big footprint and we need to find a way to to lighten that footprint um we need to think about our lifestyles in the city as well you know so whether it is the embracement of public transit uh the abandonment of cars cycling more in the city walking more in the city you know that's things that we want to encourage as planners as well
0: I just wanted to, you know, this is a chance for um, maybe aspiring urban planners. What would you uh, tell to tell you know, potential architecture students, engineers who might be interested in this field? Urban planning is to, to some degree kind of like architecture
1: where you're not just somebody that's doing one thing. You're kind of like a conductor that's orchestrating various disciplines. Um, you're orchestrating between like as a planner, you'll be working with infrastructural planners and engineers you'll be working with you know environmental sustainability guys we will be doing things like if it's coastal you'll be working with you know the hydraulic engineers the coastal protection development teams um, you're doing developments you will have you know the real estate guys they'll be working with economists they're working with so it's actually quite fascinating you know as a discipline because it entails basically all the activities and all the key sort of um, um, traits you know that you know the human race wants to get engaged in, and, and to me, if if nothing, it's every project is a learning process. Um, we've had uh, one colleague of ours, you know, he was trained as an architect. We brought him in, you know, because he was interested in in, in um, urban planning and design. And he's saying, "Wow, it's fascinating because I've done you know five six projects and none of them are ever similar. You know, they deal with such different things, um, different traits, different." interest groups, different people you're engaging with, different clients and stakeholders. So every project is unique. So in some sense, you never get bored because everything is different. Um, It's definitely a job where you feel that you are very small because the complexity of the the planning jobs are massive Um, and you're just one very, very small element in this big moving machinery of getting a city up off the ground. I think the pandemic has given us perspective as to the importance of living in a community that's well-planned. Um, a lot of, especially for those of us who've gone through the lockdown, and I hope, I guess, you know, in most cities, people have experienced that. You realize that, you know, living in a community that's well-planned, there are conveniences that are within walking distances that you don't have to hop into the car to drive around. And that's you know, has greatly benefited um, people who, are living in those nice um, or well-planned communities um, or at the same time also being able to be quickly um, able to access healthcare, um, be it, you know, a clinic or a hospital, uh, being able to access conveniences such as a supermarket or a convenience store that's uh, within walkable distances. So that's something that, you know, um, has brought to the fore um, to the c- sort of collective consciousness of everyone that's gone through a lockdown that it's actually good, you know, um, when in the past, people were like, oh, yeah, I don't want a shop near me. It's like you've got tons of people going there, going out. I don't know where they come from. Um, I don't have privacy. But I think today people are like, I want to have a shop that's near me. Hopefully it's just downstairs. Uh, hopefully it's just nearby. Uh, corner shops are you know, making a comeback. Um, and I
0: think that's probably a great thing. So back to NBism in this case, right? That's right. Yeah, we talked about NIMBYism now, it's NBism. <laughs> Actually linked to that, you know, in terms of like hobbies, I know a lot of people picked up cycling during the, the pandemic. So what are some changes in the way that we play, you know, as a result of, of COVID nineteen and how has planning shaped that or can it shape that?
1: You know, cities being, you know, huge carbon footprint sort of monsters uh, on the environment and cycling is one way to reduce that you know, compared to a motor vehicle that's probably a lot less um, impactful to the environment um, and I think at the same time it also allows people to experience the infrastructure or the lack of infrastructure that we have in the cities and that's actually brought a greater appreciation to the importance of creating well-planned um, cycling infrastructure well-planned non-motorized sort of um, um, connectivity And I think this was something that prior to this pandemic, as planners, we had a hard time trying to convince um, the powers that be, you know, that these are important. These are not just for recreation. And we hope that with this um, pandemic and with more people picking up cycling, that's going to change. Because at the end of the day, if you really want to make an impact on the environment, it's the commuters, the bike commuters that make an impact and make a difference.
0: So when it comes to mobility, people always think of it in the traditional, maybe driving versus public transport, but we haven't really considered the walkability or cyclability of of our cities as well.
1: That's right. That's right. So I think fundamentally, it's about rethinking how we go about, you know, our daily lives. Mm. Um, Motor cars, motor vehicles, public transit, they all play a role, Mm. right? Um, Each of them have a certain nice niche um, with regards to how we go about our daily lives. Um, public transit definitely moves us in a predictable manner, very quickly between places, um, and very efficiently, very cheaply as well. Having a private car allows you to move, or, or probably have an itinerary um, that you know it's fairly flexible. You know, if you've got. Kids and all, you want to go out to the beach. That's probably, you know, still arguably one of the better ways of, of going about it. But you don't have to own a car. You could, you could share a car. And I think car sharing today is getting very acceptable. And you know, cycling, the your your kick scooter, um, your your PMDs and all, they they play a role as well. They are a last mile connectivity. Um, And to a certain degree, it's more than just a mile, right? I think you can probably go five kilometers, ten kilometers on a bike fairly easily, you know, fairly comfortably. So it also makes you rethink, you know, there are other alternatives to getting something
0: done and going somewhere. I think linked to the idea of the last mile. How would a city change in response to greater availability of last mile transport or walkability? Will we see a difference in terms of the way we build malls or uh, shops and even our workspaces? How do you see that changing?
1: I think definitely it will change. Um, you know, for us, those of us who are living in Singapore, um, we've already experienced that with that proliferation of neighbourhood malls um, in all the towns that we live in. Um, think about the times they've gone to Orchard Road, you know, over the last few years. It's hard, you can hardly think of, you know, um, I've got to go Orchard because I need something. Um, because most of the time, the neighbourhood malls have taken care of that. So if you take that as a bit of a... a um, Uh, Metaphor analogy and you think about you know how having shops that are convenient to you um, that's close by to you that would change your lifestyle your habits Um, i think definitely it will have a major impact Um, and you know obviously retail is driven by footfall the more people who who go into a place who walks past in a place makes it more attractive makes the makes the um the land comparatively from from a commerce point of view more valuable, from a retail point of view, more valuable, and therefore you're able to attract higher
0: order of goods um, into that neighborhood. But how do you see the future of work impacting the way that we design cities as well? I think there's a big shift
1: towards automation in in you know various aspects of our lives. I mean in manufacturing that's already been, you know, one of the key industrial revolutions um, over the past, you know, few decades. And today we're talking about um Industries moving into not just automation and not just digitization, but um, being able to digitally customize something at a cost that's not too far off from something that's mass-produced. You know, um, as an example, I always you know tell people about you know Nike, right? Nike has this Nike ID where you can go online, customize a shoe to your heart's content, and probably have like what's the only unique shoe out there that's yours um, for probably a ten or twenty percent price premium think of that kind of um, automation and, and extend that to cars extend that to your computers extend that to quite a lot of other things in life um, I think that's really on the cuffs of becoming you know mainstream and um, at the same time you know that same sort of um, idea applies to the way we work as well um, I think all of us have read articles about you know how AI has you know replaced a lot of the paralegals in, in contracting. Um, especially because a lot of the contract terms actually are automated, can be automated. I, I understand that, you know, in um, insurance underwriting, a lot of these are no longer done by humans. You know, and some companies adopted AI to get the, all these things written up, um, and the same thing applies for us even in planning as well. A lot of the things that we do, probably not just in planning and architecture and all, they are to a certain degree repetitive, and they could probably benefit with you know a computer. Coming in to do more iterative, uh, more complex um, studies into something that's done because a task that would take a human probably weeks to do can probably be done in days or hours by a computer. So imagine something that you would take so long to do, and with this kind of um, technological uh, revolution, imagine the kind of cities you'll be able to come up with.
0: Wow, and I think linked to that even in uh, for us comms people. Uh, within our PR team, we were exploring this um, DALI, I think. That was the AI image generator. That's right. And even that uh, notion of, uh, at first, we were terrified that you know, it's going to replace our graphics designers. It's going to replace that creativity, the human creativity. But what was interesting is how people use this tool in a very creative way. And it really enabled them to come up with even more uh, incredible designs. And I can see that totally applying in uh, urban planning as well that's right I think linked to that um, in terms of the notion of uh, maybe a more specific uh, approach to design interventions based on your background as an architect as well what are some specific design or interventions that you see in this post-pandemic world that needs to be implemented what are some things that we need to be doing differently in the way that we build cities
1: so I think it's about rethinking how we design especially public spaces um I suppose prior to the pandemic there was that big drive towards you know bigger is better we're doing huge mega buildings you know giant air-conditioned boxes um, we were proudly saying we built the bigger shopping mall in the whole world in the whole region and whatever it is you know and the whole thing is air-conditioned but I think over the last probably couple of years maybe the last half a decade or so you know there's been a big push towards moving towards buildings that are net zero um, and You know, while that's addressing a bit of that sustainability requirement, but at the same time, in order to hit that, we have to embrace passive um, cooling. So, be it ventilated spaces, um, spaces that are not in condition, they're opened to the air, to the surroundings, to the sky. Um, That's actually been a good push towards creating buildings that are also hygienic in that sense, where you know you allow for better airflow, you allow for better ventilation. When we design hospitals right part of the exercise in designing hospitals is thinking about what is going to be the airflow where are the higher uh, um, pressurized areas where you know you're not going to be allowing external air to come in and contaminate the air air that's within it Um, where are you going to be channeling the sort of um, germs and viruses in the airflow um, out of that and that's actually quite complex um, but, you know, in, in, in adopting some of that know-how and that knowledge into how we plan, uh, not just buildings, but neighborhoods and cities, um, that's created a big shift towards, you know, using all these spaces, thinking about airflow, um, not just from an environmental sustainability point of view, but with, from a public health perspective um, to create more, I guess, hygienic cities. And I think in planning, we talked a little bit about, you know, this guy Hausman when he created Paris. You know, it's cut down, you know, literally cut through buildings, you know, just to create avenues because, you know, in the name of actually creating better sanitation uh, for Paris, I think we're seeing the next wave of the housemanization now where we're, we're rethinking how cities are planned um, from a, from a um, hygiene and health perspective.
0: So much more airy cities where you know, we can really enjoy um, passive cooling without the need for complex HVAC systems as well.
1: That's right. That's right. Um, you know, and I, I think that's important because at the end of the day, that also allows us to introduce a lot of greenery into the cities. You know, plants are good for us, not just with regards to, you know, bringing in fresh air. They, they soothe the soul. Um, they have a positive impact on the mental health within the cities as well. Um, they have a, as I understand, you know, uh, getting the kids out is important. I, I remember just reading a study where um, you know, kids getting myopia, and I think that's something that's prevalent throughout not just within Asia, but you know, increasingly in a lot of other cities as well. Um, and interestingly enough, it's not it's not genetic per se, um, but it's apparently got to do with kids just not getting enough hours of sunlight. And for kids who get sunlight, um, you know, they have very low incidence of myopia. But kids who are, you know, kept indoors, you know, and I guess part of that is also you're just looking at walls that are close to you right and you develop myopia pretty quickly so creating greenery spaces creating open spaces spaces where people can go in and enjoy because obviously part of creating a hygienic open space is having airflow right and people will go there people will will play people the kids will play you know fly the kite picnic and whatnot and that's generally just good for people you know it's a plus thing I, i can't think of a bad thing
0: and in terms of pluses and minuses. So um, I think as a closing question, I wanted to chat with you. Do you think the pandemic was a net plus or a net minus in terms of the future of cities?
1: I would say that it's probably a net plus. Um, The pandemic has changed the way we live our lives. Um, We've made us you know, actually to a certain degree have a smaller carbon footprint. Um, We've realized that we could get a lot of things done without having to travel to get things done. It's sparked a logistics revolution. Um, people are a lot more comfortable going online to to order and buy things. Um, I suppose that in itself currently has got quite a lot of inefficiencies, but uh, you know we'll probably f- figure something out. Um, perhaps even the way we design the cities, design the buildings to accommodate this kind of um, 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 consumption math, um, behavior. But likewise, you know, it's also allowed us to rethink about you know again our commuting habits. Um, the way you know cities are planned, um, so that we don't have to travel so far, uh, large distances for, for you know our daily goods um, and a lot of other things as well. So I would say it's a debt plus. You know, um, it's got us to rethink and replan buildings and cities in a way where it's a lot more sustainable. It's a lot better. Um, so yes, you know it's unfortunate that you know the pandemic has come around, um, but to a certain degree, that's also allowed us to probably rethink and go back and fix some of the mistakes we've made you know in the
0: past and i think if and when the next pandemic hits us we'll definitely be in a much different space where we are living as well let's hope that you know we we learn big
1: lessons from this and we change things for the better
0: yeah and here's to doing things differently the next time thanks so much and thanks for having me and thank you for listening to building cities shaping lives a podcast by the sabana jurong group where we talk about our architecture Engineering and managed services are shaping the world that we live in. I'm Daniel Lee, a communicator with the SJ Group. Subscribe to our podcast on your favourite platforms and please consider leaving us a review to help make our future episodes better. That's all for today. See you next time.